Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuel Ettini, and this is the Sustainability Journey. Welcome to another episode, and today we are the third special episode discussing the result of COP food system and really the impact on our planet. And we are doing it with another recognized expert, Brent Loken, who is the WWF Global Lead Food Scientist. Thank you so much, Brent, for being here with us today. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, it's a pleasure being here. Brent, you are a recognized expert. You are a change maker. You are doing wonder. You have presented reports and you are at the forefront of changing food system. But before going there, the usual question that we ask, what is Brent's journey? What is your background? Yeah, interesting. The sustainability journey. Every, everybody's on our own journey, right? In terms of how we got, like where we started and where we want to go. I mean, my journey in terms of where I started and where I am today has been, you know, I've done quite a few things. I mean, I was in international education for a while, I taught some physics and chemistry at international schools. Um, I founded a school. Then after that, I went to Indonesia. So I was in international education for 10 to 15 years. Then I went to Indonesia and I founded an NGO. And the idea with this NGO was to work with uh, local communities and working with the Dayak people on protecting their forests, you know, because we all know the situation in Indonesia, you know, in, like the island of Borneo, facing rampant levels of deforestation, loss of um, these large, amazing charismatic species. Um, you know, orangutans, clouded leopards, and others. And uh, I wanted to go there and start an NGO and work with local communities to protect the forests. I was there for five years, worked uh, and lived there with the Dayak, and uh, we were successful in protecting a pretty large forest in um, East Kalimantan, uh, working with the Dayak. But one of the things that I realized there is um, how everything comes back to food, how everything is impacted by food. So a lot of the challenges that the local communities were facing came back to issues of food, food security, um, hunger. Can they get the right amounts of food? Can they continue to uh, have that um, local garden where they could um, you know, produce their own food? Their culture was very much centered around food and the seasons and like the harvesting of rice. Uh, and of course, palm oil um, is destroying forests, right? And that's a food. So what I quickly began to realize is that um, I might be able to have a much greater impact by focusing on the issue of food than focusing on the issue of things like orangutan conservation or, or clouded leopard conservation. And I could use food as an entry point for protecting these large charismatic species as well, too. So then I made the shift from working with them to working on food. And I started to work for EAT, which is an organization based out of Oslo. I was with EAT for about four years, wonderful um, organization doing very innovative things. And during that time, I helped to lead the EAT Lancet Report, uh, which came out in 2019, which I believe at this point is probably the most cited uh, scientific report on food. Uh, that came out in 2019 and really laid, you know, set the landscape in terms of laying out those scientific targets for what healthy food is and what sustainable food um, production is, whereas, you know, up until that time, there were no global 
scientific targets. Um, but then after that, I started to realize that I wanted to work for a larger organization. As much as I loved to eat, to have the global kind of impact and reach that um, I really wanted to have, that scalable type of impact. I wanted to work at the large organization like you know WWF and WWF at that time, and still is the first conservation organization focusing on food, period, which I think is quite impressive that uh, WWF has had the foresight to see that food is such a huge issue. And if we want to continue to protect pandas and tigers and all those other things that WWF is actually known for, we have to think about food. So I started to work at uh, WWF and I run their global food scientific program and I work to set the global agenda on developing the science for how we can, uh, for the connection between climate nature, biodiversity loss, and also food. Wonderful brand. And I really touched the key of the problem, especially the linking conservation food. So we have discussed a lot and then the past few days of COP, the food system in a changing planet. I know you have developed several reports. Can you talk about what are the challenges and the opportunities that are lying there? Absolutely massive. And this year at COP, it was being called the food COP because for so many years, for some reason, our food systems, say, have been highly ignored. We haven't looked at the role of food systems. You know, we've talked a lot about energy and transport and trade and electricity and all those other things, right? But we haven't dealt with food. Whereas food is uh, one third of global greenhouse gas emissions, at least one third. That seems to be the consensus right now. Food is a leading driver of biodiversity loss, the leading user of fresh water use, which is another huge issue that we should probably start talking about, that nexus of food and water, right? So there's huge opportunities. So food is a main driver of all these things. By fixing our food systems, we have this massive opportunity for actually being able to mitigate climate, but not only bring down greenhouse gas emissions, but also store tons of greenhouse gas emissions under the ground, which is what we need. And every single climate model that you have out there says that it's not just about pulling down, it's about storing too. And uh, by restoring forests and freeing up um, old croplands and things like that, you know, areas like that, reducing the amount of grazing land that we have, we can actually restore tons of land, which is going to be absolutely critical in our fight to keep the 1.5 degree limit alive. So there's huge opportunities, you know, and wonderfully is that, is that food is finally talked about at COP this year. Uh, there were a lot of holes, and I think you and I can probably discuss some of those, but, uh, but at least from a civil society standpoint, food is finally on the table. Definitely, Brent. Can you go a bit deeper in your reports that you have presented before COP? Which were the idea that you brought forward as WWF? Yeah, it's taken some time, but at the global level, we have a pretty good understanding of the issues around food and food systems. You know, there's been a lot of um, scientific reports that have come out. The Eat Lancet was one that I talked about before, which came out in 2019. The IPCC in its last couple of reports has highlighted the central role that food systems play. Um, there's been growing calls from many different sectors um, saying that food systems have to be considered in climate negotiations, biodiversity, you know, conservation, land use um, um, as well. So globally, these calls have been happening. But where I think things are starting to break down a little bit, where we have less of, a, of an idea of where to go next is what happens at the national level. So we're calling for a food system transformation, which means we need to change how we produce food. We need to reduce food loss and waste. We need to shift our diets. But what does that look like in different countries? What does this mean for people living in Kenya? What does this mean for people living in Indonesia? What does this mean for people living in Sweden, the US, Bolivia? In many parts of the world, dietary shifts will look differently. They'll play out differently. Food production and how we change 
how we produce food will look differently depending on the local situation. Same with food loss and waste. So where we need to pivot is really downscaling of these global targets and really starting to um, start to make sense of how it plays out at the national level. And we're calling this the great food puzzle because we're looking at it's each country is like the you know piece of the puzzle. And if you've ever put together a puzzle, you know, especially a large one, you know, you throw it out on the table. And it's just this massive collection of pieces, and it looks absolutely impossible at the beginning. And then over time, you start to sort the pieces, the pieces that have the same color or the same texture, the pieces that seem to have the same picture on them. And then you start to put them together. And over time, this picture starts to emerge, and you build this amazing picture. And once you start to see that, then that's when it begins really fun. That's how we're seeing the world's food system, is each country is a piece of the puzzle, right? Each country in terms of their food system type and their local characteristics and where they are in terms of uh, nutrition and things like food loss and waste, uh, you know, that's where we need to start focusing our attention. And we start have to start putting that um, puzzle together. So with this report, we started to do that. We looked um, deeply at Brazil, Colombia, Kenya, and um, UAE, and the different food system types there. And they all have very different food system types. And we started to look at and assess in terms of how food system transformation will look the same and differently in each one of the countries. And what are those key actions or levers that will have the most impact in each place? Thank you, Brent. Thank you so much for your discussion and you know for the key report because I really like the image of puzzle and also going localization of policies. Now we have COP has just finished. So what is your evaluation of this conference that was highly expected to solve the problem and foster you know the food system and being the cop of food? What have you seen there? Like many of us that were at COP, it's mixed feelings. On the one hand, you know, I mean, there were 45,000 people at COP this year. There's a massive attendance of COP. I think it was the second most attended COP ever. The rise of civil society was massive. I think, I think, I mean, you've never seen anything like it. Just the sheer number of people there showcasing the work that they're doing and the change that is happening on the ground. I, th I, th I think that sends a very clear message to policymakers that whether they like it or not, change is actually coming. So that was inspiring just to walk around and see all the stuff happening. It was inspiring to see uh, food systems finally being talked about, where there were five separate food pavilions, I believe. I think there were five at COP this year, specifically focusing on food-related issues. And this is the first time that's ever happened. So food is talked about a bit. Within the formal negotiations, there was a lot of push from many of us to include a food systems approach, or at least a mention of food systems into the final outcomes. The Coronivia uh, Joint Working Group was up for renegotiation at um, COP this year, and we pushed very hard to get a food systems approach approved at that. It wasn't. Um, food systems wasn't mentioned in the final text, uh, so that's unfortunate. Uh, but one of the things that all of this highlights is there's so much work that needs to be done, and we cannot stop. One of the things that I think is a bit, I think we tend to place too much hope on each one of these cops. And we need to look at each one of them as like a stepping stone, right? And, and there were some advancements that were made at this cop that I think we should celebrate. We should celebrate the fact that, you know, discussions of loss and damage finally happened. That the poorest people on the planet that uh, were not part of the problem 
um, will hopefully be compensated for some of the damage that they that these horrible disasters will cause within their countries, right? So that's that's really good. The bad thing is is that uh, there is no financial amount put on the table for this loss and damage fund. There was discussions at one point about whether the the 1.5 degree limit, which was agreed upon in Paris, whether that was going to be renegotiated. It seems like it's survived for now, but I know that there's definitely a push towards potentially looking at the 1.5 degree limit as being a um, unachievable target. I mean, it's not actually a target. The target is zero degrees, right? We should not go above zero degrees Celsius. <laughs> the 1.5 C is a limit, but still even that, it survived for now, and we just need to make sure that it has survived. You know, so there were positive outcomes. The there was not increased, not a lot of increased ambition in terms of how we're going to reach the 1.5 degree limit. You know, so a lot of people are saying it's now up to COP28 to save us. You know, a lot of expectations have now been kind of kicked down the road for one more year, which I think is unfortunate. So things to celebrate, things to make us uh, realize that we have to continue to keep on working on. Um, but I think what this means for every single one of us is we have to redouble our efforts and we cannot ever get complacent and say we've now achieved our particular outcome because that's not how it's going to work. It's it's going to involve daily concerted effort from each one of us to roll up our sleeves, to figure out what our role is in terms of um, the change and the change maker that we want to become. And we need to keep on pushing, you know, and there's a great quote that I love, whether it is to be uh, utopia or oblivion will be a touch and go relay race right up until the final moment by Buckminster Fuller. And I think he really saw this out in terms of like, we're really sending on, we're really down one or two tracks, whether we can achieve the 1.5 C limit, which is described as, I guess, utopia in some way, although it's not going to be for many people, or oblivion, which is continuing down this path of a uh, decreased ambition and such, will be a touch and go relay race every day, right? And and it's, and it's, and it's not something that's going to be solved. And uh We'll see what happens, but um, uh, glad to be on this journey together. And I, it definitely is a journey. Definitely. Thank you, Brent, for your frank analysis of the result of COP. I'm sure now everybody has their eyes on Dubai, COP28. Our eyes are on COP28, right? But we also have to realize that we cannot continue to kick the can down the road for another year, right? And if we weren't, you know, if this was 2000, and we had realized a problem and we were at this point, you know, 22 years ago, we'd have time to be able to figure things out. But now we're at such a sense of urgency in terms of being able to solve this, that it is a bit worrisome that we continue to look towards like the next year as being the the cop that will save us. Yeah, definitely. You know, the knowledge and action gap is really strong. You know, we have read for 20 more years, you know, tipping point, everybody's discussing about it. Now it's science, but the action is not yet there. We know it. <laughs> it's, it's no surprise to anybody. And why anybody should be surprised at this point is completely doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yes. I want to ask you, you know, before going, you know, a bit of your stories and some impact stories from your work, why? From your observatory why there is this gap and how can we explain because scientific evidence is overwhelming how comes that now we are not able you know to put into action because 
it's demonstrated. If we continue in this path, the planet will be over. I know it's a tough question. <laughs> yeah, but, but I think us as a species has a really tough time preparing and looking for something that's going to happen in the future. We're very driven by instantaneous um, gratification um, rewards. And I, I think that's even getting worse in the uh, era of social media, um, especially as people are looking towards Instagrams and TikToks and everything else. It's it's a, it's an era of instant gratification. So to say, do this now, you'll um, prevent something in the future that you can't maybe see at this particular point, and you'll receive the benefits sometime in the future. That's really hard for humanity, and there's a lot of vested interest. You know, we're we've been on this path, and a lot of people have made a lot of money um, in the the way things have been happening and and, and I think to shit to turn that around to shift from where we're going is um it is a it's a tricky shift to turn around even though the evidence is right there in front of us and I don't think evidence is always the the best predictor or or influencer of human behavior right we know things like drinking a lot of alcohol or smoking and eating unhealthy food is bad for us, but people still do it, <laughs> even though the evidence is overwhelming, you know? So, so I think, I, I think evidence is part of it, but um, by itself is not, is not nearly enough. Thank you, Brian. I think that is, is hardwired in us, you know, instant gratification is something that a bias that we have and uh, as a species. <laughs> and now, as we say, we are always, helpful I mean, and really hopeful for the future. And I want to ask a bit about your work. You're a scientist, a catalyzer of change. Can you share a bit of some success stories, some work that you have done and that can bring hope of what, not waiting for this scope, but that the journeys are already there and people are really transforming and trying to work? What I would like to focus on as a message of hope is the collective work that we did at COP this year, rather than any particular achievement that I've had because it's always been through this collective act action and coming together with other people where um, what's actually given me hope. What, you know, e even as, as, as mixed as COP was this year, what gave me hope was just seeing all my friends and colleagues and individuals at COP coming together to want to make the world a better place, you know, and that gives me hope that there's so many people out there wanting to really turn this ship around. You know, and it's a culmination of the scientific work, which is done by so many groups, individuals, by the activists, by the um, NGOs, by civil society, by all of us, right, who are really working towards this. And there are some countries that are also starting to step up to this well, you know, also. So I would say that that really gives me hope at this point is just seeing so many people like yourself, you know, starting this podcast and, and wanting to share the stories of different people. We just need to figure out how to come together and connect the dots and amplify the impact, right? Having said all that, I would, you know, I would also say that I, I think relying on hope is, can be a bit problematic and hope has never been my North Star because uh, hope comes and goes. It ebbs and flows. Some days you wake up and you're hopeful and some days you wake up and you're not. Um, and I think, you know, our North Star really needs to be just sheer hard work and determination. You know, hope is, is, is good, but I think that those mornings when you're lacking hope, that's when we really got to lean on, okay, we're going to get up and we're going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to put our heads down and we're going to get to work even harder. Um, you know, so those that were discouraged with the outcome of what, you know, what happened at COP, 
Um, don't rely on the hope, you know, look at it, feel it, observe it, but then rely on the hard work and figure out what it is that you have to do and, and you know, get to work. And thank you so much, Brent. You already even given us a message of grit, of passion, of practice and work. And I really appreciate the work that you have done and the insight that you, you have shared. Have you got something that you want to share to our audience as a final talk to us and maybe a tip on how we can practically do, the people that are listening to us, what we can do? There are a lot of individuals that are screaming to find something they, they can do. What is that one thing, right? And you know, when you're looking at something like wanting to save orangutans or wanting to um, combat this global crisis of climate change, it, it can be paralyzing sometimes for individuals to figure out what it is that they can do in their, you know, them as, an, as a single person. And this is what I think is so amazing about food, is food gives us that agency to be able to um, make those choices, to be able to every single day with the food that we eat, the food that we choose to eat, uh, can make the world a better place. And, and by choosing foods that are more healthy and sustainable, uh, that might be one of the single greatest impacts uh, that an individual can have. There is a caveat to that, making sure that individuals, as long as they have access to healthy and sustainable food, as long as they can afford healthy and sustainable food, and, and that's with them. Um, but as long as those conditions exist, then being able to choose healthy and sustainable food, you know, is one of those, a very practical thing that every single person can do right now today with your next meal is to make that choice. And thank you so much, Brent. Vote with your meal and vote for sustainability, we can say it as a slogan. I'm really humbled to having hosted you and I'm really grateful for your great insights. Thank you so much, Brent. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much and, and for the work that you're doing. Are you satisfied after this wonderful episode? Let's continue together our sustainability journey.